Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the curious endings of all sorts of places, people, and things. I'm Emily. I'm Sarah. And Sarah's going to go ahead and go first today. What are you covering today, Sarah? I am going to talk about Robert E. Lee and where he went. And yes, that Robert E. Lee, <laughs> the commander of the Confederate Army, the the states that tried to secede from the Union, Union of the United States of America because they wanted to own slaves. Yep. What's that? You say, well, not Emily. It was a war of northern aggression. That's actually not true. The aggression was from the north to end slavery. Um, namely that it should not exist and you should not enslave people. Uh, it is no secret uh, with a little bit of history lessons that the southern states, uh, in their declarations, said that they wanted to preserve the practice of slavery. And you can go back and you can look at the actual statements of politicians in the southern states at the time. And the entire reason they wanted to secede was because they wanted to preserve the practice of slavery. So when people argue about the the Civil War was for states' rights and the South uh, keeping its sovereignty, this is what is known as the lost cause. And it came about after the Civil War, and it was regarded by many people to be a whitewashing of the cause of the Civil War and to make the Civil War seem more noble, um, but even people like Robert E. Lee would tell you at the time that the reason for the Civil War was to preserve the institution of keeping black people enslaved. So, Robert E. Lee, he's got a cult of personality around him. It seems like he's got statues everywhere. He uh, is regarded by some people as just a kindly, devout Christian who abhorred slavery and just was in the war to protect his home state of Virginia. This is not true. <laughs> he was he was he actually graduated from West Point. He was in the Mexican American War and then he became the commander of the Confederate Army. Not not to like a little bit into the Civil War, but he definitely at first he opposed secession, but he joined the cause regardless after desires to preserve the South's right to keep enslaved black people. Uh, he did not abhor slavery. He was a white supremacist. He believed that people, black people, by the grace of God, should be enslaved, and it was good for them. So in, and we can see this in letters he wrote, and accounts from him and about him at the time, that he really, truly believed in white supremacy, and that it was ordained from God that people should kidnap and enslave black people. So uh, there are accounts, many of them, of him believing this, and at one point, he inherited through his wife the Washington Custis Plantation at the death of his father-in-law, George Washington Custis. And yes, they were related to George Washington, the president, hmm. in Arlington, Virginia. His father-in-law had wanted his slaves freed upon his death, 
And guess who didn't do that as executor of the will? Robert E. Lee. Yes. In fact, by accounts of the slaves in 1866, so after the Civil War was over, in abolitionist newspapers, he was actually extremely cruel to these people. He split up families by selling members of the family off. Um, and there's a pretty famous case when three of the slaves ran away uh, after they were re-kidnapped. He had them beaten and their wounds washed with salt brine. Mm. Yeah. His treatment of slaves and the refusal to free them after the death of his father-in-law actually led to a near-slave revolt on the plantation. Like, he was that bad. I mean, it doesn't take much. You're already enslaved. So to be cruel on top of that and to split families up is something more cruel entirely. Anyway, so during the Confederate Army's invasion into Pennsylvania, it is pretty well-known historical fact that his armies, in, uh, and he encouraged the capture of free black people and kidnapped them and brought them back to the South as slaves. These were free people that he kidnapped and brought back to the South to be enslaved again. And this was post-secession, so this was post-Emancipation Proclamation. This was during the Civil War. So it was okay. during the Confederate Army's invasion into Pennsylvania. Okay. So, yeah, they were kidnapping black people. And he. a lot of this has to do with his ideas at the time. And this is a quote from him um, when he was talking to a New York Herald reporter. After the Civil War was over, they were talking about the freedom of black people. And this is what he said. He said that unless some humane course is adopted based on wisdom and Christian principles, you do a wrong and injustice to the whole Negro race in setting them free. And it is only this consideration that has led the wisdom, intelligence, and Christianity of the South to support and defend the institution. So he truly believed that it was God-ordained that white people white Southerners should enslave black people, and it was for their own good. To, so to say that he abhorred slavery would be completely wrong and was not true. He truly believed that they should be enslaved and that it was better for them. And you can go through and read letters that he wrote. You can read his accounts at the time about how he believed this. So, yes. <laughs> So what happened to him? I'm not going to go through the Civil War. It would take forever, um, and there's plenty of information about the Civil War out there, and you can read about it. So the plantation that I talked about earlier where he would not free the slaves was actually seized by the Union, and it is now Arlington National Cemetery. So yes, it was that plantation. It was George Washington's plantation, and it was um, passed through his wife's family um, till his father-in-law George Washington Custis died and he inherited it through his wife. So after the war, Lee was stripped of his right to vote, but he was not imprisoned or punished much, uh, even though he was indicted. Uh, Lee went on to retire and he wanted to, he wanted to retire on a little farm and just be left alone, but he was way too famous in the South for that. So it was hard for him to live in peace. In 1865, President Andrew Josh Johnson issued a proclamation of amnesty and pardon for people who had been in the rebellion against the Union of the United States. 
but this didn't include Lee because he was a member of one of the accepted classes that were not in the amnesty. So he had to actually apply to President Johnson for amnesty, but he never regained his right to vote. He was, however, pardoned, but he never regained his right to vote. And Lee did support President's President Johnson's plans for reconstruction of the South. And a lot of that was quick restoration of the statehood of the rebellious Southern states. He also encouraged other high status Southerners to participate in reconstruction and not try to rise up again against the Union to his credit, maybe to the credit of actually moving forward. And he and his family resided in Richmond until he became the president of Washington College in Lexington. So in, 18, in October 1865, until his death, he served uh, as the president of that college, which is now known as Washington Endley College in Lex Lexington, Virginia. He was well regarded as the president of that college. Apparently, the students really respected him, but he never... He never agreed that black people should get the right to vote. He strongly opposed it. He believed that they would not be able to vote intelligently and participate intelligently in political discourse in life. So his doctrine of white supremacy was definitely up until the day he died. He truly, truly believed it. So in 1870, he suffered a stroke. He died two weeks later from complications from the stroke and pneumonia. He apparently, and I don't know how true this story was because I saw it in a couple of places, he was buried without shoes because otherwise he wouldn't fit in the casket. Huh, that's a snug casket. Yeah, well, apparently there was a lot of really bad flooding and they couldn't find a proper size casket for him, so they had to bury him without shoes. It's just a side note, and it was a weird thing, so I wrote it down. Uh, but he is buried underneath Lee Chapel, and it was named after him, at what is now the Washington and Lee University, where he was the president until the day of his death. And that's where he is. He's still there, underneath the chapel. So he was a pro-Reconstructionist white supremacist yes and a lot of that that attitude uh and the lost cause in particular is the basis is regarded as the basis for jim crow laws later that um basically criminalized being black fascinating yeah what an ass yeah and so when i see statues being torn down not sad no because no. I, I just, I imagine from the perspective of someone who knows uh, their family was enslaved, that they were raped, they were beaten, they were had salt brine poured on their wounds, they tried to escape, etc., etc., the history of an enslaved people. I imagine what it must be like to have a statue of someone like Robert E. Lee and it regarded as... And this person regarded as a symbol of Southern pride or Southern heritage. And I'm just, I can only imagine what is that, that is like. I try to put myself in those shoes. And so this is why when I see statues come down, I'm like, it's time for something else. Let's stop fighting the Civil War and allow African-Americans, black people to 
regain full rights in this country finally and stop being criminalized. There we go. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, this is a pro Black Lives Matter podcast. Just going to say that. If we lose some of our 30 regular listeners, that's okay. <laughs> well, 40 actually. But <laughs> if we lose if we lo- if we go down to 30, that's still okay. So, I was listening to a podcast the other night and Duncan, I think his name's Duncan Trussell, he said something like, "Well, who am I afraid of offending? White supremacists?" I don't want to be friends with those people anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's enough. Enough is enough. Uh, yeah. I think of just how Robert E. Lee was kind of turned into this sort of cute, cutesy character. Like, yeah. I think I think of Dukes of Hazard, And wasn't the car, their car named Robert E. Lee? I believe so. Yeah. How is that cute? How is that charming? How is that funny? I mean, I guess it would be funny if it was satire of, like, a car that always lost its stock races and then it was named Robert E. Lee. Sure. You know, <laughs> he lost the war. He he was a part of the... He was the, the participant in the second biggest surrender of Confederate troops. The first biggest yes. happened in Durham, North Carolina. I should yes. talk about that, where Sherman went after he burnt Atlanta. Yeah, you totally should, because our city is part of that story. Yeah. Anyway, Appomattox was the second largest group of troops, of Confederate troops, that surrendered to the Union. I God, I hope it, Appomattox is the right place. I'm pretty, su- I'm pretty sure you're right. Okay, we'll just say yes. We'll say yes. Well, thank you. I did not. I knew almost nothing about Robert E. Lee just because it, it's funny that he is so sort of reified and yet not actually talked about. Yeah, it's interesting to me. And I think a lot of it is just the story that you grew up with. I never would have known any of this until I was actually came across a uh, an Atlantic article that was like, turns out Robert E. Lee was not that great a guy. Why is he so, why is he so deified? Why is Mm -hmm. he so held up as this symbol of wonderfulness? And I mean, he was well regarded at Washington college. The students loved him, but I'm guessing all the students were white. So I, I, white supremacy was definitely part of his, being it was part of his belief in the world and his worldview was mm-hmm. that it was important that white people by grace of of god were uh reign over black people so i think it's important to say that and it's important to point that out uh, when we talk about statues where they go these people who were deified and held as symbols because it's important to talk about symbols and what they mean. I think it's important to talk about how he was pro-Reconstruction, too, simply because a lot of people point to Reconstruction as, like, why the South, Southeastern United States never, or why people consider the Southeastern United States to have never fully rejoined the Union, and a lot of people use it as an excuse of, like, if they just treated us right. And Robert E. Lee was pro-Reconstruction. 
He definitely was. He was part of, he, he was really supportive of President Johnson's quick reconstruction plan of giving uh, statehood very quickly back to the southern states and rebuilding. And he actually contacted, uh, like I said, higher status southerners to participate in it and to move things along so that uh, we could move, uh, the union could move back to uh more material prosperity, get along with our lives, just get it, get everything going, basically. Yeah. Reopen the economy. <laughs> exactly. We are familiar with that phrase now. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to take a slight left turn. My topic is much sillier. Uh, Good. But it's about some some historical weirdos and... They're somewhat megalomaniacal. Do you know the origin of the phrase, breakfast is the most important meal of the day? Napoleon? Uh, I'm pretty sure that was an army marches on its stomach. Oh, okay. Uh, One of the Kellogg brothers. Oh, the Kellogg brothers. Oh, my God. Okay, I love the, I love and hate these guys. (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're fascinating weirdo people who did some awful stuff. And some, this is a less awful thing they did that's just really peculiar and ingrained in the ecology of the Northeastern United States. So, what am I going to talk about? I'm going to talk about where black squirrels went. (laughs) <laughs> how is that related to the Kellogg brothers? That's weird. I'll tell you. It's directly okay. <laughs> related to the Kellogg brothers. Because of course it is. Exactly. It, it's <laughs> it's a total non sequitur because I'm talking about breakfast and I'm talking about cereal guys and the cere- you know, the cereal people. And then I'm talking about squirrels. So let me give you a little background. So there's W.K. Kellogg and J.H. Kellogg. They were brothers. Uh, W.K. Kellogg invented the cornflake breakfast cereal, and he was a Seventh-day Adventist. And those are related because he was attempting to spread the good word of vegetarianism, including grains for breakfast, by selling a cold breakfast cereal that you could just eat with milk poured over it. Okay. Now, why vegetarianism and why grains? Do you know? So you wouldn't touch your junk? I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Because frankly, everything the Kellogg's did revolved around not masturbating. <laughs> and I mean, and well, and like genitals, genitalia, sex. Well, they I got to were... tell you, like breakfast cereal does not make me want to touch myself. So maybe they they were onto something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe. Uh, <laughs> And then there's W.K. Kellogg, who ran a sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, and he offered health advice, cornflakes. He was big on yogurt enemas. Uh, What? Yeah, uh, it was important to him, to his patients in the sanitarium. Now, a sanitarium, and this is in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, so this is post-Civil War, a sanitarium was used for treatment of all kinds of ailments, and it, it could be as minimal as, like, being heartbroken after you get dumped and you go to a sanitarium for a while to recover, and you, it's almost like a little calm vacation, to tuberculosis. And being cared for because you have tuberculosis and hoping that the better air that's lacking in miasmas uh, helps heal your lungs 
So J.H., who ran the sanitarium, was also an avid anti-masturbation evangelist, and got he and his similarly-minded brother spread that message far and wide. It was a key component of their, uh, I guess, medical-ish care. Now let's talk about squirrels. <laughs> so <laughs> there, so there's in Michigan, eastern gray squirrels and American red squirrels. And if we have anyone listening in the UK, there is a or in um, see, like, I think they're also in mainland Europe. Uh, this is slightly different from a European red squirrel. They are actually less visibly red, and they. Have, the gray squirrel is fairly large compared to the red squirrel, which is quite tiny. The eastern gray squirrel comes in two color phases. So there's a gray color phase, and then there's a black color phase. And the gray color phase is your average sort of gray, marled fur. And then a black or a melanistic gray squirrel is a pure dark black. They're really striking. The ratio of gray color to black color phases in squirrel populations changes over time and in different places. So as dark, dense forests are logged in an area, the gray color phase becomes more common because it's slightly harder to see in a more sparse forest, in early successional forests, in fields than a black squirrel. Black squirrels are quite striking unless you're in like a dense, dark, shady forest. And then with the American red squirrel... The Kellogg brothers hated them. They hated them. <laughs> they okay. hated them deeply. They're they're very grouchy and aggressive. They are omnivorous. They're cannibals. They'll eat each other. They'll eat their each other's babies. Gray squirrels? No, red squirrels. Oh, red okay. Squirrels, they are they are feisty. They are small. Oh. And ready to rumble. And if you've ever had a gray or a red squirrel like scold you from a tree to try to get you away from your their tree or whatever, they are tenacious and vocal, and they don't want you around. It's they remind me of a house wrens, which are a very teeny tiny brown bird that will give you the business if you go near them. Oh, absolutely. I've been dive-bombed by them before. Yeah, and they're probably the size of a ping-pong ball, the, yes. the the wrens, and they probably weigh as much as a penny. They weigh nothing, they're the size they're size of nothing, and they will try to murder you. Yeah, I'm like, well, you have some bravery there, bird. I am, I am a very large woman, and you are trying <laughs> to take me on. <laughs> And I actually really like small, grouchy animals. So Me I find, too. I find red squirrels and house friends and things like that, uh, like screech owls, very charming. So W.K. and J.H. Kellogg don't find them, did not find the American red squirrel charming. And they were particularly bothered that red squirrels were more prevalent at their sanitarium than gray squirrels. Now let's talk about why they were more prevalent. Okay, so they're quite grouchy and aggressive. There's also a lot of land clearing and around the sanitarium grounds. And uh, red squirrels largely eat pine trees and or pine seeds, whereas gray squirrels like deep forests and, and acorns and things like that. And so uh, there was a myth at the time, and this is a myth that's even talked about now, because this is how I heard about this story. I actually, I went to Michigan State University and... The Kellogg brothers willed a huge amount of land to 
Michigan State University. And one of their vacation homes at Gull Lake in Michigan uh, was willed to the university. And you can study summer classes. You can go to summer classes and stuff there. And it's very pretty. And the original house that they, the Kellogg family would stay in is still standing. You can rent it. Uh, my brother got married there. He and his wife had a beautiful wedding there. So anyway, I've spent a moderate amount of time at this place because I took a, a summer's worth of classes there. And that, that's how I found out about this story. But there was a myth that the red squirrels were castrating the male gray squirrels. Okay. And I can see why the Kellogg brothers would become very invested in a story about gen squirrel genitals. So the red squirrels don't castrate male gray squirrels. That's a very common myth. And what actually happens is gray squirrel testicles just shrink a lot after mating season. And so it looks kind of like they disappear. But the red squirrels got this reputation as uh, I, I wrote in my notes, ball biting brutes. <laughs> and you know uh, the Kellogg brothers believed this theory lots of people do and I'm, that, there's plenty of foolishness in the Kellogg uh, ideological catalog this is not something that they came up with and them ascribing to it was not something that was uncommon so they didn't like it they were angry about it and the red squirrels were most likely more common because of logging activities in Battle Creek more pine forests because they're an early succession er, early successional species that means when a uh, land is clear cut a pine tree will do better than a maple tree early on in the big yeah. open clearing so red squirrels thrive in pine forests more than gray squirrels uh and the kellogg brothers wanted these squirrels out of their face the red squirrels they were sick of them they hated them and so here's what they did. And this is how black squirrels come in contact with the Kellogg brothers. The Kellogg brothers went to, depending on what source you believe, when there's one that's more likely, uh, somewhere in Europe or somewhere in Ontario, Canada. I'm betting it's Ontario, uh, to Kent County, Ontario, and collected a batch of black flays gray squirrels, around 100 of them. And the brothers were under the impression that black phase gray squirrels would be a better match for the reds. They'd take them on. <laughs> why? I, I don't know why they thought this. They were weird. I'm proud of these little uh, phrases I came up with in these notes. So the great squirrel shuffle happened around 1915. The great squirrel shuffle. <laughs> yeah. So in, in 1915, although some say, sources say 1930, they imported a hundred gray or Black phase gray squirrels from Ontario. I'm going to throw out the Europe. Can you imagine taking a hundred squirrels on a ship from Europe? Just like a, a steamer uh, with, with a bunch of people traveling. And then you've got a hundred squirrels. Anyway. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then. Hold on. I got to go feed my hundred squirrels <laughs> in the hold. Well, and then in another news article, an old news article from 1915, it was stated that another 200 would be coming in the winter of 1915. So, 1915 into 1916. So, I'm pretty sure they were from Ontario. Then they probably imported around 300. And as weird as this was, they kind of got the effect 
impact that they wanted. Around Battle Creek, the Kellogg family was able to establish a substantial population of black phase gray squirrels. And so it probably helped that at the time squirrel hunting was illegal in Battle Creek. And then there's also a legend that the Kellogg brothers introduced black squirrels to Michigan State University. But it was actually a guy named Joe Johnson, not to be mistaken with the Civil War general Joe Johnson. <laughs> Unrelated. <laughs> Uh, in a, between 1958 and 1962. Now, uh, Michigan State University is in East Lansing, Michigan, which is about an hour and a half drive-ish from Battle Creek. So, and in Michigan, we... we <laughs> I have no idea what the distance is. I just know how long it takes to get there in a car, which is a very common Michigan measurement of distances. How long yeah. does it take to get there? Uh, so I wonder if it's like I wonder if it's a human thing or if it's a Midwest thing because I think about like if people ask me how far the ocean is I'm like oh it takes about two two and a half hours to get there from here and that's how I think of it too and and Sarah's from Illinois so yes and Joe Johnson seemed like a pretty nice guy he was like a groundskeeper at Michigan State University anyway so there are stories like news stories of black squirrels being taken from the Michigan population, which thrived and introduced into Ohio, Indiana and Maine. And there's like, there's news articles about why are there so many black squirrels in battle Creek? The mysterious, mysterious organ, the mysterious origins of the black squirrels inhabiting uh, Lincoln County, Where's the Lincoln County? Uh, Maine. The conspiracy theory behind the infamous black squirrel, which is in, uh, let's see, uh, Indiana. Huh. So there's all these news articles about the melanistic eastern gray squirrel. And so, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. This is interesting to me because there are no black squirrels where I grew up in central Illinois. However, where I went to college about 50 miles south, mm-hmm. there are black squirrels down there. And it, it may have to do with uh, having more f- a forest mm-hmm. if there's a larger forest coverage because gray squirrels do better in a more established forest. Okay. It may have to do with somebody thinking black squirrels were cute and carrying some to that campus. It may have been somebody went to Michigan State University was like, I like that. Or even like uh, Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo, Michigan is right near Battle Creek, Michigan. So Kalamazoo okay. College, Western State, uh, Western Michigan State University. Uh, any of those. Going to a college campus, seeing them, saying, hey, I like those, or hey, let's import them, or hey, let's study them, and then moving them, because they've been moved to Ohio, Indiana, and Maine. And so black squirrels became part of the population in all those states because of people moving, mating pairs. And they can also, they can, the black squirrels can mate with the, uh, the gray phase, eastern gray squirrels as well. Uh, where yeah. I grew up in Metro Detroit, you see all these motley squirrels where they've got like a brown or a gray tail and a black right. body and a head. <laughs> or like a, a gray, the weirdest is a gray head with a black body and a black tail. So it's like, they're like Franken's, 
Franken squirrels. They it's like they've been <laughs> they've been cobbled together by some doctor trying to create a super squirrel. And they're I mean they're I think they're really neat. I think I miss black squirrels. I think they're beautiful. They are they're very pretty. They seem to be fluffier too. Yep, and shinier. I think shinier fur. Uh, so I miss them, uh, but I'm not going to import any here because that would be grossly inappropriate. I don't agree with moving species around like that. But so that's how the Kellogg family fundamentally altered the squirrel populations in several states just because they felt like it. Wow. All because of squirrel genitals and the story of castrating squirrels yeah and to for some reason the, the red squirrels for some reason the Kellogg family really liked watching gray squirrels on their property and like there's a quote from one of the wives of one of the brothers saying that she really enjoyed watching all the gray squirrels play so they just did it because they wanted to and if that's not some kind of uh, you know rich and powerful family behavior I don't know what is We'll classify this in my in my folder of crazy ass things that rich people do. Yeah, like the garden hermits. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they had a garden hermit. I don't know. I could see I them mean, liking that. I mean, they were garden hermits, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where black squirrels went. They were moved from most likely Kent County, Ontario, to. Battle Creek, Michigan, and then to Michigan State University. They've spread to the Metro Detroit area. Uh, this is all southern Michigan. This is not... So if you look at your hand, so from the uh, where the fingers start down, <laughs> it's not in the finger part of Michigan. Uh, for people who don't know, a lot of people from Michigan will use their hand and point to it to show where they live or where they went to school or stuff like that, so... Because Michigan is the shape of a mitten. I guess it is. I'd never thought about it. Really? Yeah, I've never thought about it. Oh, that's funny. I must not have shown you where I grew up. <laughs> no, you just told me and I was like, oh yeah, I've flown into there like a million times. I know where that is. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, I can point I can point out my hand to roughly where Battle Creek is, where Lansing is. That's where I grew up. <laughs> Well, cool. And it's all because of genitals. <laughs> well, it's all because of the Kellogg brothers' obsession thereof. Or Even their, with animal with. genitals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, they didn't make up that myth. That is a myth yeah. that has been that has persisted to this day. There's still people that understand it that way. That's actually how it was told to me. But I was like, that doesn't make any sense. I don't... That... It would... It, it made no sense. So I looked into it and it's a pre there's pretty good indication that it just has to do with gray squirrels testes changing in size between mating season and not mating season, which makes a lot yeah. more sense. Yeah. I like gray squirrels a lot too. We have, we have a, like three great, three little squirrels that grew up in the tree, like right. You can see the nest above my bathtub I have a big window above my bathtub and you you can see them you can see the nest there and so I have one that has a, a white spot on her head and I've named her spot and she is so funny she's not really afraid of us like she stays away from us but she's not really afraid of us mm -hmm. 
Um, but she just sits out and she plays and she does crazy stuff. She will drink out of our pond and do like weird like somersaults and roll around in the grass afterwards. And she's just silly. I enjoy watching her. So yeah. I get I get that part of it. <laughs> I don't know that you're gonna fundamentally alter the local squirrel population in order to get that experience again. Wait, no, of course not. Why would I do that? Spot's <laughs> just fine on her own. Her brothers and her are just fine. I don't need to import any animals so that they have a better life. <laughs> I don't need to disrupt ecosystems in order to cater to my backyard squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. We could have an entire podcast series on the Kellogg's. They are Yeah. They are interesting people. <laughs> oh, I should ask you're wrong about I should suggest it to them cuz they do they do much more in-depth research than I know I do. I'm not going to speak to Sarah's research prog- process, but... Oh, probably more than I do, yeah. Uh, they do single-topic episodes or multiple episodes on the same topic, and I think they might find the Kellogg's fascinating because they were so weird. <laughs> and we think of them as just the breakfast people. Or maybe if you've seen The Road to Wellville, you get something of an idea of their personalities, but I, I don't think... I think Road to Wellville both sanitized and inflated different parts of the two brothers' personalities. Was that what that movie was about? See, I barely remember it. I think I watched it, but I was doing something else at the time. It's a terrible movie. <laughs> okay, maybe that's why I don't remember it. I, I kind of barely remember the movie. Like, I remember them being weird, but not super weird, and like... The sanitarium thing, and but that's about all I remember. Yeah, it's Sir Anthony Hopkins plays uh, J. H. Kellogg, and he does a pretty good job, I think. Uh, although I wish they had focused more on his character. There, it was about two characters who are staying at the sanitarium, and one of them's Matthew Broderick, and he's basically just running. Like, literally running around the sanitarium the whole time with his eyes bugging out and then, like, falling on the floor in a pratfall. And then there's lots of jokes about masturbation. And that's it. Like, <laughs> that's, that's the whole movie. The end. Uh, so, <laughs> it's not great, I'm going to say. I'm going to say that I could not make a better movie about the Kellogg brothers. I'm going to say that. So that I am not being, you know, too mean-spirited about somebody else's creative work because I uh, don't like to do that, but it was not an enjoyable movie, in my opinion. I think uh, Lynch should do a movie about the Kellogg's brothers. Mm-hmm. David Lynch, I yeah. really think he should do... I think that his version of the Kellogg brothers would be so bizarre. It would be so fantastic and bizarre. It would probably be really good. Really unnerving, I bet. Yes. Yes. As it should be. Like, they were threatening people. Anyway. Anyway. I don't need, I, this doesn't need to turn into a Kellogg family hate fest. 
What if he said, like, I was like, Robert E. Lee and Kellogg family episode. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's just, it's the, it's the weird dudes who did a lot of damage episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, on that note, you can uh, contact us via email, whereitisitpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, whereitisitpodcast.com. Uh, we have a Patreon. And a Twitter that I haven't updated in forever. I really should. I might just ask Sarah. Will you Will you take over the Twitter? I'm so bad about it. Got suggestions? We'll take them. You got thoughts on squirrels? We'll take them. I don't want to hear your thoughts on Robert E. Lee. And, uh, you can talk to somebody else about that. <laughs> I'm not going to engage in that conversation. <laughs> Unless it's like, yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks for thanks, Sarah, for telling us about it. Yeah, exactly. That's fine. We'll take it. We're not we're not gonna debate it. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, no. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye.